Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on this week's episode, we're going to be getting into our first of three Grammy-nominated jazz albums. Um, We've already done one, actually, by Terry Lynn Carrington, uh, so go check out that album. It's called New Standards Volume 1, so check that one out as well. But this week, we're getting into an album by a fantastic quartet led by Joshua Redman, and the album is long gone. It's an album that was recorded a few years ago before the pandemic, but was just released back in September of last year. And so it's nominated for um, instrumental, jazz instrumental album. So we're going to be doing kind of a run of a few different albums that are are Grammy nominated, and this is our our first of three. Um, But before we get into the album itself we're gonna do our jazz question of the week but this week we're gonna do something a little bit different like to switch it up from time to time and we love to give max a a nice little quiz here and there just to see if max is staying up to date with all of his his jazz history knowledge how do you feel about this max well professor i'm doing well (laughs) really glad you're giving me yet another quiz here and uh, we'll see what happens yeah, um, Max could either look really smart or really dumb, so that's what we love to do on this show. Um, cool. So the quiz that we're getting into this week is going to be, I just Google jazz quizzes because that's what's easy to do. Um, and the quiz that we're going to do with Max this week is a jazz nickname trivia quiz. So I'm going to give Max the, the person's first and last name, and Max is going to have five seconds to tell me what their nickname is. And... A lot of them are multiple choice, but that'd be too easy for Max. So he's going to have the option for me to give him the multiple choice answers on four of them. So if he doesn't know, he can say multiple choice and I'll give him the four options and then he can guess. And so we'll see how well Max does out of 20. Uh, Max, are you ready to get started here? I'm as ready as I could possibly be. Nicknames are a big thing in jazz, so we'll see if I know them and let's do it cool i'm just gonna say first name blank last name and then you tell me their nickname and if you don't know it you can say multiple choice and i'll give you but you got to be quick because i'm only going to give you five seconds to to answer them yes sir all right all right max here we go um number one huddy blank ledbetter three four multiple choice multiple choice yeah choo choo trump Blozo or Lead Belly? Uh, option four, the Lead Belly. Lead, lead Belly. Okay, cool. All right. And this one actually doesn't have a multiple choice. The second one is Louis Blank Armstrong. Well, there's a lot of different nicknames. Satchmo, Pops. Uh, it says starts with an S. So. so Satchmo. Yeah, there you go. All right. And the third one... Um, Charlie Blank Parker. Bird or Yardbird? Cool. Yardbird is an option. Okay. Roland Blank Berrigan. Bunny. Okay. Okay. William Blank Cole. Cozy. Nice. Wow, this guy. <laughs> um, Earl Blank Hines. Father. Leon Blank uh, Biderbeck. Bix. William Blank Basie. Count or Bill. Um, yeah, count. Count, I think so one. Okay, Joseph Blank Oliver. King. There we go. Ferdinand Blank Lamente. Multiple choice. 
Slim, Ferdy, Jelly Roll, Trump. Ferdy. Okay. Blank. Oh, Thomas Blank Waller. Fats. Okay. Lewis Blank Harden. Little. Lil. Oh, that's not an option, Max. Uh, Take another guess. You got five seconds or multiple choice, but you only have two left. Multiple choice. Okay. Lewis Moonboy Harden, Moondog Harden, Moon Man Harden, or Mooney Harden? Shoot, I don't know this one. I'm going with Mooney. Mooney. Okay. Ezekiel Blank Smith. Say it again. Hezekiah Blank Smith. Oh, man. How many multiple choice do I have? You have one left. Oh, God. All right, let's use it. All right. SWAT, Stuff, Snuffy, and Snuff. Oh, Stuff. Okay. John Blank Gillespie. Burks or Diz or Dizzy. Okay. John Blank Reinhardt. Django. Okay. Julian Blank Adderley, and they spelled his last name wrong. <laughs> well, that is Cannonball. Cannonball Adderley. Theodore Blank Rollins. Sonny. McKinley Morganfield, known as Blank Waters. Muddy. Leroy Blank Stewart. Ooh. Do I have any more multiple choice? Uh, no, you don't. Oh, man. Leroy Blank Stewart. Um, Slam? Slam, okay. Slam. It's Slam Stewart, yes. Okay. Charles Blank Russell. Curly. Not an option. Um, shoot. Charlie Russell was... Charles Russell. All right, five, four... Is Charlie there? Three, nope. Two. It's with a C. One. Curl, curly, curdy. Uh, uh, Chucky. You want to go Chucky? Yeah, Chucky. All right. Now I'll give you a little bit of help there. All right. Are you ready to submit your answers there, Max? Let's see how you do. Yeah. Did. I got a few wrong, but I knew most of them, I think. You got... You went 17 out of 20. I'm not going to go yeah. over the ones you got right. Um, The ones you got wrong were... Ferdinand Blank Lamente. Um, apparently, Jelly Roll. Is that Jelly Roll oh, is that Morton? Je- that's Jelly Roll Morton. Yeah, that's his real name. Which I, I had forgot. I knew his real name was different than Jelly Roll Morton. Huh. But but I didn't remember that was his name. So Morton's so, yeah. not even his last name. I guess not. And um, Louis Blank Harden was Moondog Harden. I've never Moon heard Moondog Harden. Okay. And then you got the Stuff Smith one right. Um, yeah, I knew Stuff Smith. I didn't know his first name. Slam Stewart. And then the last one you got wrong. I think you'll be you'll be a little upset with yourself here. Uh, Charles Blank Russell is Pee Wee. Oh, I know Pee Wee Russell. Yep. Well, there I mean, you go. Yeah. It didn't come to my head, but yeah. Okay, well, seventeen out of twenty. That's solid. Yeah, you got some some definitely some good ones. Um, the Cozy Cole one you got pretty pretty quickly, so that was good. Yep. Cool. Awesome. And there's some people that we've gone over on the the podcast on that. So that was cool. All right, cool. Well, let's get into um, the actual album that we're going to be getting into this week, which is Long Gone by Joshua Redman. Max, why don't you tell us 
a little bit about the history um, about of the album and then get into a little bit of the personnel on the album for us, Max. Yeah, this is the third release of, of this particular quartet. The first one was the album Mood Swing, which was out in the early 90s, I believe 1994, on Nonesuch Records, which this one is as well. And Nonesuch is, is the record label owned by Warner Music Group, formerly known as Warner Brothers. And so Joshua Redman has had a longstanding contract with Warner Brothers Music, and that's where a lot of his albums are released on, a.k.a. Nonesuch Records. And this album features all originals, so six originals from Joshua Redman, and it was recorded in September of 2019, yet it was not released until September of 2022. I'm pretty sure, obviously, because of the onset of the pandemic in 2020, so he waited to release this one, and now it is nominated for Best Jazz Instrumental Album uh, for the 2023 Grammys. So happy to, to review this one and this one of course from the leader joshua redman who plays both tenor and soprano saxophone on this record if you don't know he was born in 1969 in berkeley california and his father dewey redman was a very heavy saxophonist very well known um, also born to a jewish mother he learned clarinet by age nine before switching to the tenor sax and was immersed in music from an early age he graduated from Harvard in 1991. If you don't know, Joshua Redman is known for being a pretty smart cookie. So he was planning on going to Yale, actually, for law school. But instead, he took a gap year between um, graduating from Harvard and going on to law school, where he just gigged in the New York scene. So he was living with, with roommates and gigging, you know, playing across the city of New York. And then he got some success. He signed a Warner Brothers Records, so he decided to pursue a, a full force music music career, excuse me, and decided not to go to Yale for law school. So he went all in on music. Um, began recording as a leader and a sideman in 1993, working with greats like Christian McBride, Pat Metheny, Peter Martin, Charlie Hayden, and many more. He co-founded the SF Jazz Collective. He's also performed with the Dave Matthews Band, The Bad Plus, Marcus Miller, Diane Reeves, The Rolling Stones, Stevie Wonder, The Roots, and many more. And I've actually seen him perform live um, in 2019, and I met him briefly, and he was a really nice guy. He signed my album, so I bought a Joshua Redman album, and of that recording, um, his most recent recording at the time, called Come What May. And so it was really cool to, to see him up close and personal. And I think right around that time, he started kind of modernizing his sound and his approach a little bit, kind of lighting up his articulation. And right around there was the start of that happening. So it was, it was really interesting to hear him at that time. And, and, and it's very evident on Long Gone, this record, that he's definitely modernized his sound. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something to keep in mind if we were to listen to something from the earlier mid-90s with Redman versus today. His sound has definitely changed a lot. And I haven't, you know, I, I've i listened to some, but I hadn't listened to much of his newer stuff. I'd listened to a lot of his older stuff. There's a recording uh, live at the the Village Vanguard that's really good that we've, you know, we both have listened to. Um, I think it's called Spirit of the Moment, something like that. Yeah, and that's 
there's Peter Martin. Yeah, Peter Martin's record. killing it on that one. Yeah, and it's just it's yeah it's, his style has changed a lot from then to now, and especially it seems like over the past few years. So we'll definitely get into that a little bit and how his style has changed and his approach a little bit on this album. Secondly, we have the pianist Brad Meldow on this album. He is a pianist, composer, arranger. He was born in 1970 in Jacksonville, Florida, and he began playing piano at an early age, and then he studied at the New School while beginning a full recording and gigging career. He's known for attaining aspects of pop, rock, jazz, and classical music in his playing and his writing. He's been nominated for multiple Grammys and has a very extensive discography as a leader and a sideman. He's really known as kind of a virtuoso on the piano. He's super skilled. Um, some of his solos and some of the things I've seen him do like on live videos on YouTube is honestly just insane, his left and right hand ability. So we'll be able to break down a little bit of Brad Meldow's playing on this album. Um, he certainly is a fantastic pianist and one of the, the best uh of the modern era and then we get christian mcbride on bass again um he's a philly cat definitely one of the greatest bassists of the last 30 years we did discuss him on chick korea's five-piece band live in episode 16 so if you want to hear more from christian mcbride or learn a little bit more about his playing or his background definitely go check out that album um five-piece band uh live which is a, a really cool recording as well and then, Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the ever-so-fantastic Brian Blade on the drums? Yeah, we have a stellar drummer on this album. Brian Blade, born in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1970, grew up surrounded by gospel music in the Zion Baptist Church, and his brother actually played drums in the church. Brian began playing music in elementary school on the violin before taking up the drums, probably inspired by his brother. And then he began gigging in the New Orleans scene and going to Loyola Loyola University, um, where he he studied music and, and performed in New Orleans. He then formed his fellowship band in 1997, then joined Wayne Shorter's band in 2000, and has also recorded with the likes of Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Herbie Hancock, Ron Miles, and many more. He's released records illustrating him as a singer-songwriter as well, and he has a vast discography. Brian Blade is a powerhouse musician, always interesting to listen to. At times, you get a sense he was heavily influenced by the likes of Elvin Jones mm. as well. Um, so he's very, very hip cat to, to check out, and he does a lot of great contribution on this album. Yeah, and one thing that's kind of interesting to note is these guys are like all almost exactly the same age. Um a few of them yes. born in 1970. Uh, Joshua Redman was born in 69. Then I think Chris McBride was born in like 72 or so. So they're all roughly about the same age. So, you know, they've grown up in the scene together, especially in the 90s. Well, and especially McBride and Redman were both kind of what we would call the young lions of the 90s, which was kind of um, a lot of the young players at that time, the, the mid early to mid 1990s, were reverting back to the tradition and bringing in elements of, you know, the jazz tradition in their modern type playing. And so the, the group of those guys are often referred to as the young lions of the 90s. And those two, because of their similar age, the similar uh, time stamp or time frame of, of when they came up on the scene um, is, is evident from, from their place in this music. And yeah, they, they pretty much came up together 
Uh, and so they, they continue to play together because of that. Yeah, and this group actually, they've been playing together. The first time they recorded together was in the early 90s, but they don't play together super often. Like once every five or ten years, they'll put out an album. So I think this is like, what, their fourth album, third or fourth album that they've put out together? Yeah, it's at least their third. Yeah. Uh, but mood, mood Swing is sort of the ultimate uh, recording of this group, yeah. of the jo- you know, the Joshua Redman Quartet. So, um it's a reiteration here the third i think maybe it's the fourth of that quartet but you know these guys are so busy playing with so many people doing so many things all the time that it's rare for them to get together and so that you know this is a a lens through you know which we can experience the ultimate sort of quartet when they do form together when they get the chance to yeah, for sure. And it's it's definitely a treat to hear these guys kind of play together. Well, let's get into the title track, the first track on the album entitled Long Gone, Max. Yeah, this is a, a Redman original, like I mentioned, all these tracks are. This is kind of a, an interesting AABA form where each section is 16 bars long. So the head is kind of four 16 bar sections with an eight bar tag at the end of the form that leads into the solos. Um, and I love that added tag section at the end of the form. It, it reminds me of the great blues tune fried pies from West Montgomery, where they ride out a little bit, I think on the four chord after playing the head before hitting the top of the blues form. It's just a great extender. You know, you don't have to go into the top of the form right away. We can add a little space, add a little time where we can just vamp on some ideas you know, play some riff oriented ideas and just, just really kind of take our time getting into the solo. So I like that aspect of this composition where we get to do that. Um, it's a great compositional technique. I want us to listen to that together just because it's, it's a neat aspect to this arrangement of, uh, the tune long gone. This is about one thirty-five to one fifty-five. Yep, and there was the top of the form. Yep, right when when Christian kind of starts walking more, that's the top of the form. Um, so it's it's a neat transition. It it's smooth. Um, it, it it's treated really well. They just let it simmer a little bit before they actually start to solo, and I and and they keep that in the form, which is very interesting too. I think, like I mentioned, Redmond's sound here is modernized a little bit. It's still Joshua Redmond but with more of a rounder sound and a cleaner sound. And there's a slightly lighter touch to his articulation, his approach, and his sound is still there, but it's tweaked a little bit. His ability to go in and out of the higher registers is also quite impressive. Most cats will reach toward the altissimo, wait a second, then play something lower on the horn, not go in and out as smoothly and as effortlessly as Josh does. And also his soloing is quite fluid and always moving. I want to listen to to a snippet of the solo so we can check that out together. This is around 303 to 318. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's all over the horn. It's almost like that snippet was one long phrase that displayed his stellar use of the range of the horn, and it's pretty much one extended journey from the high end to the low end of the saxophone. Then the tail end of Redmond's solo goes into the piano solo. There's a neat transition there, too. Josh is playing more rhythmically and has a little bit more emphasis on feel here that sets up the change in feel that occurs once the piano solo starts. Let's listen to that. This is 323. Yeah, and listen, like Brian Blade there is just so good. What he's playing is just so tasteful there. Absolutely. And again, it's that sort of transition eight bars at the end of the form there that they're keeping in the form as they go to the next soloist. So it's, but there, you know, it. I think it's a moment where Joshua Redmond can let loose a little bit. He's playing with more feel, more rhythm, more soul, if I dare say so. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and I really just dig it. I mean, it's a, it's just a really cool moment compositionally and soloistically. Yeah. And those are the moments that really grab me on this album is when we do get a little bit more from, from Joshua Redman, when we kind of feel him let loose and play, you know, sections that sound like that. Not all of the album is going to give us that, but those are some of my favorite moments is when we kind of get a little bit more from, from Redman there. And they also swing harder when the piano solo starts with the bass outlining the quarter note. There's definitely a more straight ahead feel. So that sort of transition also works to kind of, I don't know, uh, give a palette to the overall feel and approach. And then they come in hot with the, with the piano solo and that starts the walking. So it's kind of like a little breather moment too, in terms of the feel. Yeah, for sure. And there's kind of that dynamic build at the end of, uh, Redmond Sloan, you can hear Blade kind of accenting that and then that kind of roll, press roll into or just a roll into the the walking feel in the, the piano solo there. And there are moments of great dynamics in this record. That was one of them, but we'll see that time and time again as we keep going. I'd say the piano solo also has some nice left-hand chordal accompaniment when he's playing, and there's times where his lines are quite intricate. The end of his solo is bluesy and seems to treat it uh, seems to be treated in a similar way that Joshua Redman was doing. So, you know, just a little more space to get more bluesy, a little more space to get more soulful and really feel your way rhythmically and and with a, a hint of blues in that transition section. And that goes in uh, back to the B section of the melody or the third set of the 16 bars in the head. And they play the last A section after that into a ride out that defines the ending of the form and they let loose a little bit again and i love the way joshua redmond treats that ending in general i think this ending is super fantastic they move dynamically downward after letting loose leading to a final slowdown and a final chord let's listen to that because it's so beautifully done this is 640 to about 
yeah, the di- the dynamics are superb. It's just so beautiful the way they moved downward and and finally back up at the vi- at the very end. Yeah, who needs a studio fade when you can just do that instead, right, Max? Exactly. This is you know one great aspect to this record is is every song has an ending. There is no studio fade here. Yeah, and I definitely I appreciate that. The album is definitely well curated in that sense and everything is super well thought out and everything seems to be right where it's supposed to be right in place um so let's get into the second track on the album entitled disco ears um this one's a fun one i like uh this one starts out with kind of the rhythm section and some syncopation going on in the changes and then we get joshua redmond on soprano on this track which i think uh fits the composition and the sound really well here it's an AABA form as well, and I really dig the bridge on this tune, especially the way that the the last four bars of the bridge build back into the A section. I think that's super cool. And um, Redmond starts the solo with this like super bluesy lick and then dives into some super tasty lines. I want to listen to the way that Redmond starts a solo here because it's kind of just like a classic Redmond solo beginning here um, from 130 to 154. Yeah, there's so much movement there, and you're right. He starts out with a blues lick, and then he gets right into the lines, you know, that he, addressing changes, but doing more than that, creating phrasing out the wazoo. You know, it really is stellar. Yeah, yeah, I just love that lick. It just that's so Redmond to just dive like just a super bluesy lick, but then to turn it into those those lines like that that just screams Joshua Redmond to me. And then the rest of his solo is very line oriented, but super interesting. And I just absolutely love the rhythm section they're comping during his solo. Um, Brian Blade is just really really driving things here through Joshua Redmond's solo and. There's really, really good dynamic build towards the end of Joshua Redmond's solo, which I really enjoy as well. And then we get a solo from Bad, Brad Meldow, and his solo is just right in the pocket from the get-go. His left hand is so good. His left hand is what sticks out in his playing maybe the most to me. His feel is incredible, and it always it feels like he's just playing what feels right to him in the moment. That's kind of what I get from Meldow a lot is it just – he's playing with a certain sense of feel and just what's coming to him is coming out of him. And let's take a listen for kind of that part of his solo and where, when you can hear that and just kind of the feel there and the way he's playing his solo. So this is uh 339 to 425. Thank you. 
Yeah, his playing just feels like a stream of consciousness to me. Do you do you get that same feeling, Max, when you're listening to to Brad play? Absolutely, and I think that's the way you should play on a tune like this. Yeah. Um, and even a more straight ahead tune, you know, you you can kind of solo with the stream of consciousness, you know, in the moment, uh, connecting one thing to the next, and just you know, not having so particularly defined phrases but it's more like one is continuing right into the, into the next. Um, so it's very dynamic in um, its approach. And I think it works well. It fits the song. It fits everything musically. It is ultimately musically appropriate. Yeah. And I think it's good to denote like the difference between this kind of stream of consciousness and Brad being able to do it with his sense of feel versus like, just like kind of playing over playing through the form and just not, phrasing things at all there still is phrasing here but it's kind of just this stream of what's coming from his mind and he's putting it onto the piano not just like he's just constantly playing like one line the whole entire time and it's just super busy um it's just kind of you know not your typical build of a solo there's just kind of it's kind of what's coming to him in the moment more so absolutely and then after brad solo, we get right back into the melody and this track is just really enjoyable in my opinion and it definitely has some some very memorable aspects to it and one thing that stands out to me is just the rhythm section throughout the entire track um they really stand out to me on this track the way that they drive it brian blade what he's doing is super interesting christian mcbride has never not been in the pocket once in his life so that's you know he's killing on this (laughs) track too um max do you have anything about this track that you want to add to it I have one little snippet I want us to check out, and this is just further proving my point about the um, emphasis on dynamics within this album and the lesson we can get as players and musicians and even listeners about how, uh, how many different ways you can use dynamics and how it can more effectively um, bring out what you're playing. So there's a snippet of that uh, 532 to 555 where there there's going to be a little drop in dynamics at 538 and then it's going to build up from there. Ah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's brilliant. I love the way that that just feels like the bottom fell out of it there. It's not like they decrescendoed like over a bar, like the bottom just kind of fell out on the beat there. And then like they built it back up. That was really, really hip there. It was an immediate drop in intensity of 538. And you're right. It bottomed out. Yeah. And that and that gave it room to breathe and open up and expand and be more, you know, no pun intended, but be more dynamic <laughs> as you're messing around with the the dynamics of the arrangement at that moment in the song. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great snippet there, Max. Thanks for adding that one in there. Let's get into the the third track on the album, Max. All right, now they they switch gears um, and they do a complete 180 here with the next tune. This is called Statuesque. Um, it begins with a consistent quarter note sort of bell tone from the piano before the saxophone enters with the, with a you know seemingly nice melody. 
Um, it seems to be heavily influenced by different genres, including classical music. The melody reminds me of a classical etude. We get a bowed bass that comes in too, and then a lot of drum cymbals. And there's definitely overall a straighter feel here. Statuesque is is kind of the antithesis to the first two tracks on the album. Um, the piano and sax move simultaneously during the melody, and the bass chimes in for a bit too. The melody goes on for quite a bit before there's uh, some silence, and then the bell tones come back, and Joshua starts to actually solo right around 2.50. So we get an almost three minutes of melody, introduction slash melody on this track, where the first three minutes are just the melody. And it's really longer notes. Again, I, I get the sense that we're almost doing a classical etude version of a jazz head here. Um which is quite a bit different. It's not my cup of tea, but you know, it, it's its own it value. You know, it has compositional value. I'm just not a big fan of what we're getting with statuesque. Yeah. It almost feels like it, the head is just basically does not feel like a typical jazz head at all. It feels like a, a classical composition. I definitely agree there. And it's just, it definitely feels like this is really, really going for a more kind of, modern lighter approach um than you know a heavy swinging approach that we might get on some you know some other tracks yeah there's a lot of modern aspects to this track statuesque the phrasing reminds me of more modern players like mark turner walter smith the third maybe some michael brecker there's quite a bit of space used at times too now sometimes when his phrasing moves downward the saxophone tone sounds almost whiny and not in a useful or humorful way. Um, but this is happening in modern saxophone playing. I don't understand this, this kind of moment in the modern style of playing where when we're moving lines downward on the saxophone, we, we don't tend to articulate as well as we normally do or as particular as we normally do. Um, and it sounds kind of whiny to me. We're going to listen to a moment of that together. This is 401 to 410. Yeah, it's almost like he just let go of the phrase there. <laughs> it's like the articulation is not super defined. And he's using, you know, slightly larger intervallic movement at times, which is kind of cool. It just seems to be played over delicately as if we're trying to lightfully float our lines and bounce them from cloud to cloud in the lightest possible way. Yeah, it's like he's afraid to hurt the line, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's tiptoeing on the notes he's playing. And I don't get that. That That is happening in modern jazz saxophone playing. Everything is just lighter. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean... It's artistic, but it's not cool to me. I don't like it. I don't dig it. It doesn't seem hip. It seems like an antithetical to what jazz as was essentially. Um, you know, it, it it a lot of jazz origin and tradition has a lot of emotion in it. A lot of uh, uh, authentic, vulnerable emotion. You know, where you're in there, you you want to be a little heavy hitting with the swing. You want to, you know, emphasize the blues. You don't want to hold back or be too light. Whereas nowadays we're kind of doing the opposite. 
Yeah, and one thing I want to do really quickly, haven't done this before, is I want to play for the listeners like just a snippet of Joshua Redman's playing from the 1990s. I want to play a snippet of his live recording at the Vanguard so we can just hear the difference and what this is exactly what Max is talking about and how his tone he's kind of adapted this more modern sound i want to listen to a sound from like the early 90s to kind of get an idea of what max is talking about and the change from his approach then to his approach now this is from a tune called jigga jug this is a fantastic tune but we'll just hear how different his sound is there from from what we're getting here um let's listen to just a, a section of of um his playing here on jigga jug Ah, uh, it's smooth, but it's intentional. Yeah. He's still articulating. And this is what we need right here. Woo! Uh. <laughs> yeah, just the difference there from there to what we just heard in statuesque is it's it's, it's such a crazy difference. It is almost night and day. Now, you're right in that, you know, the point to make is, you know, in that snippet you just played, he is, you know, messing around, playing lower dynamics. He is um, playing softer. But everything is well-defined and intentional um, and purposeful and moving. And and that's not quite what we're getting on Statuesque here. This is, this is something different. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to point out is, yeah, even those softer, like those lines that weren't as like in your face, he's still articulating them a lot and there still feels like there's purpose to them. Whereas with this, this kind of more lighter modern approach, it feels like they're kind of letting go of the lines. And it, I don't know, I just, I, I, I understand what they're going for. And you hear a lot of players do it. We heard it with Emmanuel Wilkins as well. Um, this like really light, more classical approach. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting. We need to point out that, you know, how Joshua Redman's sound has kind of evolved and what he's going for here with this album. Right. And having said that there are moments in this very song, we're talking about statuesque where it, it is well-defined. Um, so I want to play a couple snippets of that. This is 340 to 357 where, you know, there, there's definitely a purposeful articulation happening. Yeah, I feel like some of the old, uh, you know, old Joshua Redman's creeping in, but there still is some moments where it feels like the articulation is just kind of really round and light, you know? You're right that it's still overall much lighter than what we were hearing from the snippet from the 1990s, you know. And then there's a, a small just uh, snippet that he plays right after the initial sort of whiny moment I was talking about, um, 411 to 416, where there is more definition in the sound, tone, and direction. So let's listen to that one, too. <laughs> Yeah, 
So that one had more definition to it, but it's still very light, very round, and and very clean. Yeah. Whereas you know the snippet from the '90s was a little down and dirty. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, obviously, he's technically proficient and beyond interesting to listen to. I just don't get some moments like, you know, we're getting on statuesque that when he's playing in this sort of modern style as he does here, he just didn't used to play that way in my estimation. And it's, it's it, I mean, it's good to evolve as an artist. It's good to expand what you're doing. Um, it's good to grow and progress. I just think it it's, we're we're in a in sort of another realm of approach here from Joshua Redman that is a is just a little bit unexpected. Um, I mean, it's been slowly creeping in the last few years into his playing, I think, but here it's full force, and we're really getting it on statuesque. Yeah, and I think it's just it's interesting to note because people are going to evolve; their sound is going to change. This happens with basically all musicians right their sound evolves and changes but his is definitely taking a more of a turn towards like a more modern saxophone sound more of a michael brecker or like the mount emmanuel wilkins kind of very light you know touch um whereas if you look at a guy like james carter his playing is still the same as it was however long you know like his sound has not taken that more modern approach he's still got that kind of gritty detroit sound to them you know so yeah it's just interesting to to kind of point out how you know someone's style might have changed or what approach they're going for in a certain album or a certain setting yeah and i will say this is another solo where we can hear the master at work where joshua redman is going in and out of his high range on the tenor sax so effortlessly and to do it this sort of lightly is also quite impressive um i just I don't know if I'm really into it all the time is what I'll say. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that's really important to note is that regardless of the approach or the style in certain songs on the album, the playing at all times is fantastic. There's nothing that they're so good. The solos are really all well done. The playing is super great. Um, I think it's just sometimes the style and the approach with the melodies and certain the playing style and tone um are just things that we're going to want to take a look at and how they're different from you know other other things we've listened to yeah absolutely we also get a little different approach here from brad meldow on the piano he seems to be expressing inspiration from a mixture of sources he starts off nice and easy with some lines moving up and down within the middle register of the piano there's some light yet still present left-hand accompaniment. As he continues, some of it reminds me of classical piano and how Brad Maldow is approaching this solo. It includes a moment of line movement interplay between the left and right hands as if we're playing a Bach invention. He's not doing the typical jazz way of playing where your left hand is primarily playing chords or bass-like movement to coincide with the ideas expressed from your right hand. So let's take a moment of that Listen to that together, 635 to 650. Yeah, just listen for the interaction between his right and his left hand. It's, it's definitely super interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very unique. Um, I mean, it, it does fit what we're musically getting here. So 
like you said, Brad Maldow is always in there in an appropriate manner. I'm just not sure what it really adds here. I, I don't, <laughs> we're getting into realms that I think may not really be considered jazz. Yeah, it's definitely straying from straight ahead. Um, you know, like it's not, I'd say it's still, I mean, jazz, what is jazz, you know, really? So I guess you'd still call it jazz, right. but it's straying away from, from the roots of jazz for sure. And it's definitely reaching farther out, um, which is, you know, there are cats that are going to do that. We've heard that from different cats in different ways. Um, but this definitely, yeah, this, the approach here is like Max said that like, it almost feels like it has a very classical piano feeling to it. Brad is really good and he's actually very well known for doing kind of these intertwined left and right hand kind of movements. But this, when he's doing it here, it's definitely not as straight ahead as some other times where you might hear some like left and right hand stuff that might be more like Monk or Oscar Peterson kind of based. You know, those guys are really good with both their left and their right hand. This is definitely not based more in that. It's based, feels like more in a classical setting for sure. Right. Now, towards the end of the piano solo, we hear Joshua come back in with some longer moving notes beneath the piano, which grows a tiny bit in intensity to the repeat of the head after a short pause. And I think they end nicely. There's some melodic mirroring from the bass, Christian McBride. Um, he's playing along with Josh. And then there's a final chord that's reached. It's drawn out a little bit longer than expected. So all in all, a nice ending and I think a nice beginning too. I think the arrangements on a lot of these tunes are stellar. Um, it's just that this one, generally speaking, does not do too much for me. There's some nice, interesting moments in solos and the arrangement, like I said, is well done. I just don't understand this general move in modern playing to perform as if we're playing to the ants. This one really got to me. <laughs> and to me, it brought the album down a little bit. This tune reminded me, uh, it gave me the imagery of a singular small sailboat floating away in the distance after it just went through a terrible storm and the driver or the passenger <laughs> of the boat is floating the other way and he's dead because he was toppled aside and he drowned due to the <laughs> impact of the waves. And now that man is statuesque in his demeanor as he... <laughs> As he drifts further and further away from his sailboat. That is what I'm getting with statuesque. That is the most specific thing I've ever heard in my life. That's what I'm hearing from this composition. And I don't think that's really intended. If in that that's song. what they're going for, then they're brilliant. <laughs> I guess. But I, it's just not for me, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I do appreciate this track but it just doesn't do like max said it doesn't do a whole lot for me the solos are good they're interesting but the track itself yeah i just feel like it's it kind of lacks any real drive groove i don't yeah i yeah i get i definitely understand what max is saying there so yeah let's let's move on from from this one at least it did have that an intentional ending so that's nice um so a good point there. The solos are good. Let's move on to the fourth track on the album entitled Kite Song. And this song's cool. It starts out with a, a really cool opening cadenza by Redman, which I enjoy. Um, and then one thing we kind of that kind of continues from the last track 
is this melody is just not the most interesting of melodies to me. Um, there's nice movement and dynamics from the group still, but the melody just doesn't do a lot for me here. Um, Mel Dow's solo is kind of a mix of short development of motifs kind of mixed in with different lines and runs. And it feels like it might be somewhat of that stream of consciousness idea again, kind of mixing in different ideas just as, as it comes to them. Um, one thing that continues to stand out for me is left is Brad's left hand and how he uses it in such a like unique and independent fashion. Max, we kind of just talked about it there. Um, we're going to listen to a section here um, listen for like that kind of different left hand comping and adding in lines in the left hand. But then he gets kind of back to like a more typical left hand comping style towards the end of the solo. We're going to listen to 226 to 308. Yeah, so just really, really unique stuff that he's doing there with his left hand. What do you think about that, Max? I really think it's interesting to listen for what Christian McBride is doing during those moments. Mm. Because on a lot of this song, they're they're not necessarily walking. You know, Christian McBride isn't walking. He's yeah. It's a little bit more open. And I think that really matches the song. You know, it, there's a lot of openness here, even though the, the tempo is consistent. And they're driving and you, and it's cool to hear what Brian Blade is doing too, because that adds a lot of energy within the openness. Um, but I to me, you're 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 spot on with all the interesting things Brad is doing on the keys, but it's really cool to hear how bass and drums are interacting with it as well. Yeah, especially when Brad's kind of filling up a whole lot of space with doing stuff with his left and his right hand, kind of moving things downward and upward with his left hand. It can be hard to play when someone's doing that much and filling up that much space, which is really cool from Brad, but you have to be able to, to comp in a way that's, that's suitable when someone's doing something like that. So definitely really well done from, from McBride and Brian played there. And then we get into uh, Joshua Redmond solo and there's just a really good space use of space rhythm and full range on the horn here from Redmond. I mean, he's just so well versed. He's so He's got it all. So I just want to listen to 306 to 335. And it's a good example of just all of these things from Redmond Space, Rhythm, and the range on the horn here. So let's listen for that. Yeah. 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 Always, always interesting to listen to. And you're right. He's a, he's a master of his instrument. You know, we've talked about um, players making 
tremendous solos because they treat their instrument as an extension of their body. And all the elements necessary to pull those things off have to come from your full body. I mean, when you're literally playing the saxophone, you're using every single finger and also the sides of your hand um, because there's multiple, you know, there's like 23 keys on the instrument. So it's already full finger or full hand. And then the way to feel it and to move in and out and what you do with your embouchure and your air and the way you support your air and uh, all the things that are involved with physically playing the instrument and then to master all the different ranges on it and to be able to go in and out so smoothly and lightly as he does here um, is quite, I don't know, stupendous and um, something to admire. Yeah, yeah. I just love how he mixes in so many different elements so well and using the full horn there. I mean, he's just got such good space feel, but then he's all up and down the horn there. It's just, I think I thought that was a really, really cool section to listen to kind of his, his ability there. And we get a really nice dynamic build towards the end of Redman Solo. I, that's something we've said a lot is dynamics, and that's something that this album does really well is the dynamics. And so we do get a really nice build towards the end of Redman Solo from the entire group. And then we go back into the melody on the way out and kind of a slight retardando to the end. Um, this track, it's got some interesting aspects like Statuesque did. But it kind of fails to grab my attention in a significant manner. I think the melody is less than memorable. And I just don't feel like there's a whole lot here that I'm getting from this track. And definitely the melody kind of, you know, does does a little bit of detracting for me here. Yeah, I, I would likely concur with a lot of that. One thing I do really enjoy about this track is the very beginning. You know, we open up uh, Kite Song with a saxophone cadenza so the saxophone brings in the band um and i love how josh is starting out that way as a horn player you don't have to always start off with the rhythm section starting off a tune um you can do it as a horn player and this is a great example of how to do that yeah i, de I definitely agree with that that is like when i heard the cadenza first the opening cadenza i was like oh man this is awesome and then i heard the melody i was like huh what doesn't really, I, I like the cadenza more than I like this. <laughs> yeah. You might be right that the melody, you know, was not what you would have expected from the cadenza. Um, <laughs> definitely takes a turn. Yeah. All right. And then the next, uh, track we get is called ship to shore. And this begins with the 16 bar intro and we're in three, four time here. A fair chunk of the ship to shores melody is played by both the bass and the saxophone, which is quite interesting. They're using Christian's bass as a melodic instrument and a foundational instrument at the same time. He's playing every melodic rhythmic hit with Joshua, and at times he's mixing that with a typical bass part that you would expect. Listen here for the mixture of treatment that Christian McBride is doing on the bass. Yeah, so he's moving with Joshua on the saxophone. 
um, a lot of the time, you know, together, but then there's small snippets where he's back to being a bass player. And so he's kind of going back and forth a little bit as a melody instrument and a bass. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's super interesting there. He's, I think he's able to do that really well. Um, and yeah, he's kind of filling both roles there and he's kind of hitting on the one we needs to, but then also fell following the melody there for sure. And I would describe the melody as being filled with longer notes arranged in an interesting way. Another cool track, uh, excuse me, another cool uh, thing about this track is that we get a bass solo first. And finally, we're getting a bass solo, but also finally we're getting a, a great example of a bass solo happening in the song order first. And I don't know if we've come across that yet on the Jazz Jam, if we've come across a track where the bass takes the solo first. Yeah, maybe one on Night Train. Um, I oh, think that you Ray might Brown right. might take this. He definitely takes one of those. But yeah, especially not with when there is a horn player on the album. It's not definitely not as common. Yeah, and I think it's kind of cool to arrange it in a way that the bass goes first. The sax or piano uh, don't always have to solo first. It's cool to mix up the solo order, and I think that aids in providing a different vibe to a given tune. The energy or approach that the bass soloist takes will generally set off the tone of the improv section of a song. So I, I really dig that here. And Christian McBride, of course, plays very well. I enjoy how he begins his solo with a considerable amount of repetition, and there's some blues definitely present in his playing. A number of great lines, along with expressive moments that go up and down the neck. I mean, you know Christian McBride has great hand position, and his hand position is on point. Here's a little snippet of his creativity during the tail end of his solo. Yeah, so you can sense all the movement that Christian McBride is doing, all the different ideas. He comes from so many different places all at once. It's great to get a Christian McBride solo. Yeah, and there's just like a a great reverence for like blues playing in his solo here, which I really, really like um, a lot because we haven't gotten a whole... There's like been parts of blues licks added in in certain points, but we really get a, like a strong reverence for, for blues playing in his solo here, which I enjoy. And my point about the bass solo going first and they're given the ability to set the tone for the solos that come after the bass um, is proven here because a piano solo is also bluesier. There's a considerable considerable amount of left-hand chordal accompaniment too and brian blade does a lot of nice stuff behind the piano solo as well so you know brad meldow is 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 taking some sort of the ideas about approaching this solo from christian mcbride and adding to it then josh comes back in with what seems to be a mixture of the melody and soloing and there's a brief moment of blues here also from joshua redman let's listen to that together here Yeah, so it's a, it's a brief moment of blues. Then there's also a brief moment of bop. 
uh, right at 422 to 427. Let's listen to that. Yeah, the tail end of that, there's a little bop. So we get a little blues, a little bop, and then there's some melodic movement that reminds me a lot of Michael Brecker. Um, this is 458 to 512. So it's it's three mini snippets where you get moments of really interesting playing that are all a little different. Some blues, some bops, some Michael Brecker. And I think that also points to all the influences that Joshua Redman has in general. Yeah, and he's just able to do so many different things so well. And he can play in like a more, you know, we've heard him, the more modern kind of lighter touch. And he can get really, really soulful and bluesy. I mean, so, yeah, he's just a very well-rounded saxophonist for sure. After that, Joshua actually solos a little bit more, playing a mix of fast-moving lines before referencing the melody hits once again. And then they basically ride it out a bit, and Joshua gets a bit uh, more into it, playing a tad more soulfully. We're going to listen to this ending together. This is 544 to 622, and I really do dig this ending. <laughs> yeah that ending ending idea at 618 is so cool i think i think that ending is stellar um the intro and the outro are the best parts of this song i think um and i love how on that final chord he plays a low note i think it's a low c or b on the tenor sax it was unexpected it seemed like he would have played a mid-range or high high note uh on the horn but joshua is more dynamic than that he'll throw you curveballs when you least expect it. So I love that low note there at that final chord. And then he does play that cool last idea. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that's like, I want to point out is I just, this melody again, I, I like, I love the groove of the song, but this kind of long tone melody doesn't really speak to me. And I really enjoy the, the way that they play kind of the head out because it's a mixture of the melody and Redman adding, we listen to those clips, adding different aspects, different licks to it. And it's just so much more interesting to me than the melody on the way in because it actually like moves and it says something. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, you would think. Um, I would also say that I was not expecting this melody after hearing the intro. I thought we would get something a little bit more energetic or bluesy something. Yeah. More articulated, more blues like, um, but you're right. I, I think they opened it up a lot at the end where Joshua is doing a mix of soloing in between the melodic notes and it really does kind of elevate the track a little bit more. And I think that's kind of like a another aspect of this modern jazz playing is these like 
really long tone melodies and yes i don't yeah and this is like a, a pretty good example of it i don't know it just this does not speak to me the end speaks so much more and it's like wow imagine that they're saying something i'm i'm into this more so than like just these kind of long tones following the the chordal movement i don't know it's it's a thing i mean it's happening more and more uh as we as we progress in jazz music i mean it is one of the places to go if you think about expanding um all the music we call jazz and i think a lot of the sort of blues drenched uh compositions really came out in the hard bop era you know let alone the swing era but specifically you know i think expanding on the blues or the that emphasis in this music really occurred already in the mid 1960s and so what we're getting now is is different music that elevates other aspects mm. of jazz yeah and so i think that's why there's this movement now to get a little bit lighter on the horn to really expand uh melodies and treat them differently have different intros and outros um to do different articulations and to lighten up your approach because that's where we have to go yeah and i would like to say that this is not the only modern approach to jazz music you get there are different cats that are reaching out in different ways. Like we listen to Butcher Brown and a guy like Robert Glasper who are, they're kind of reaching away from the blues, maybe in a more like hip hop or funk kind of way. Um, so it's not to say that this is the only modern approach to jazz, but this is, it is interesting to point out that this is kind of a direction that some cats are going in. It seems like a lot of saxophone players are kind of going in this direction, this kind of more lighter classical approach to playing the, the music. Yes. And I have to say it really bugs me because <laughs> to me, it's, it's not true to what the music is. We're, we're not trying to, in my opinion, in my goals as a musician, I'm not trying to import elements of classical music into my jazz because to me, everything that defines jazz is not what we learn when we talk about classical music. I mean, there are elements of it, but when we just fundamentally, we think about jazz as chromatic harmony. And a lot of classical music is solely diatonic harmony, or they have different ways of thinking about the same thing. And I don't understand, especially this sound on the saxophone that we're getting from cats like Emmanuel Wilkins. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem like it's within the tradition. It seems like we're adding in other elements that, um, sure, you can argue expand the music and diversify our approaches, and diversify the, the saxophone jazz sound. I just don't see how that approach really is emulating Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, um, any great you can think of that has had a real impact on the music. Um, it just doesn't seem appropriate to me. Yeah, and like that's one thing because like, it's not to say it's not musical because it is super musical and these songs, these tracks that we're hearing, they're well done and they're well performed. They're well arranged, but I just, yeah, I, I can agree with Max. They definitely don't speak to me as much. I dig some of what Emmanuel Wilkins does and he's definitely a, a great saxophone player. And we know Joshua Redman's a great saxophone player, but 
yeah, this, this approach, this more modern approach, um, I just, yeah, it doesn't swing as hard to me. It doesn't feel as good to me. Um, but that's not to say that it's not musical or that it doesn't appeal to some people. But I, I, I tend to agree personally with Max that I, it's just kind of moving away from the roots of, of what jazz music is, which, I mean, that might be what they're intending to do. So, you know, you got to take it for, for what it is and we'll analyze it for what it is, you know. But you don't have to move away from the roots so much to have it be modern, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so that's just one little annoyance that I have personally. But I do think this album ends really well because we get the sixth track called Rejoice, which actually does have a lot of the things you and I are missing from the middle couple of tracks. Yeah, and we hear... Uh, Redman introduced the tune and he said a tune from the 90s so I think this one might have been on their first album I'm not exactly sure um, yeah it was on it was on mood swing okay yep. um so yeah so kind of makes sense that we get a little bit more of what we you know the groove um here so this one we get um McBride comes in with the groove and then we add instruments we layer instruments in kind of one by one and I really really like the groove on this track we're actually getting a nice a nice groove here a good feel the melody is a really fun call and response between Redman and Meldow which I think is cool um it's that way in the A sections and then the the B section kind of ties it's like some cool hits that tie into the melody during the B section. So definitely a little bit different in the A section and the B sections on this track. Um, but yeah, I just, I love this melody is super cool. I love the way that it's like a call and response melody. It's well arranged. The groove is nice. Um, and then Redmond plays the riff with the rhythm section, like the, um, the riff for the tune and he ties that or he oh he plays that with the rhythm section before going into his solo and then his solo kind of starts out sparse and repetitive allowing for Mel Dow and Blade to kind of play off of his ideas which I really like and then he really starts to dig in and give us more and more of that typical Joshua Redman sound that we that we love um there's there's lots of listening and communicating going on with the rhythm section and i really it's really cool to listen for them at certainly at all points throughout this album but especially here and then at 417 they build dynamically and rhythmically and they drive into this really heavy hitting swing section i just love this section so much i want us to take a listen to it this is 417 to 442 here in rejoice the sense of repetition and um you know dynamics of course but it that to me you're right it spoke more than what we're getting in a lot of the middle of this album yeah and this when i like when i learned that this album was being nominated and was looking forward to listening to this album i think this is more of what i was hoping for and expecting from this group it's just this kind of really, really heavy hitting swing, like Redman is just really showing us what he's made of here and his super expansive vocabulary here. Also, this one is recorded live, mm. whereas the other tracks, I'm pretty sure, are studio recordings. So 
that may also be another aspect where um, maybe some of this music earlier in the album could maybe come alive more in a live setting. So maybe when they play these tunes live, there's a little bit more of what you and I are expecting um, because we get that energy here from rejoice because it's live recorded but also i think some just essential elements of the tune that make up the tune are more in line with what you and i enjoy in jazz yeah for sure yeah so but that that section there i mean i love the way that it kind of starts out like really rhythmically from everyone and then they just really really start swinging hard i think that was a cool kind of aspect there and how they how they did that um and then meldell comes out swinging with a lot of emphasis on his right hand early in the solo and there's this really cool section where meldell really lays back on the beat where it almost feels like he's out of time, but it's still super swinging. And this takes really good feel to pull this off. I want to listen to a section here where he does that. Um, this is 710 to 722. Yeah, that middle section there. Yeah, yeah, super fantastic playing. Um, there's it, the 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 way in which the drums and bass interact with both piano and sax also during their solos is just phenomenal. I mean, you you you've alluded to that, but a lot of great interplay on this track. They're listening constantly. You know, ninety percent of playing is listening, and these cats are listening as they're playing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and then. Some of what Meldal's left hand is doing is kind of, in my opinion, somewhat repetitive, and it's not the most exciting during sections of his solo. Um, I do like a lot of the solo, but there are times when it feels like his left hand is just getting super repetitive. Um, but then he gets into like some really much more heavy bop and swing stuff that I really enjoy as he starts to open the, the solo up. And then... Uh, the rest of the rhythm section really starts to swing as well when he kind of gets into that more heavy swing. Um, when they go from like a they go from a more sparse comping to a really driving swing feel. And let's listen for Meldow's lines throughout the oh my god throughout the section and the development as a whole. Let's listen for that whole thing. They kind of go from a more sparse comping to that really driving swing feel. And listen for um, Meldow's lines throughout this. This is at eight twenty five to 920 so we're going to get a good little chunk of of his solo here yeah Hey. Uh, 
Another thing he did was he referenced the melody. What yep. do you know? What a great uh, improvisatory technique to reference the melody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's just, yeah, he's got so much going on there. I love the development there. The lines are great. And I just love how that you can hear he references like some more bop ideas and he starts to swing a little bit harder. And then you hear Christian McBride just really start to walk the bass and drive with that swing. And they're all there within like, you know, a couple of a couple of beats there. I thought that was a really cool section to, to listen for. Um, and there's some really fun rhythmic interplay between Mel Dow and McBride that happens towards the end of Mel Dow's solo. Um, so I think that's super interesting. There's some more great communication and just great artistry between these musicians. And then they kind of go back into the, the melody riff and into the head out. They play the form once and then they let it ride out on that main li- uh, riff and then decrescendo until they smack us in the face with the final lick and then they hit the riff at a fortissimo and they hold out the ending. How is that for an ending, Max? It is so good. I want us to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's definitely listen to it. Do you have the um the timestamp? Well, I uh I uh mentioned that I also like the the interspersions that uh I think Joshua Redmond is doing in between the rhythmic hits. So at least uh, I think that ending is kind of eleven thirty seven to eleven fifty two. All right, let's listen, and we'll just like keep going until the end if it's not, because that's pretty close to the end. Yeah. Eleven thirty-seven. Boom. <laughs> How's that? And that is what the middle of the album was missing. Yeah. And they, but it, to their credit, they include it here at the end. I, I think this album is is kind of well curated in how it starts and how it ends. Mm-hmm. It starts out pretty strong with the song "Long Gone." You know, it's a great composition. There's a little bit, a little bit more meat and potatoes in there. And then with this one, "Rejoice," they just kind of let loose, and it's a great time. Um, and they're ending with a lot of the things you and I were missing in the middle of the album. Yeah. And I, that ending is just so cool. They're kind of bringing down, you think they're just kind of decrescendo to the end, you know, and maybe faded out. And then Joshua Redman just smacks you right upside the head with his saxophone. <laughs> I just, God, I love that one so much. That was so cool. It is really, yeah, it is really, I don't know, sort of, um, essential to what we think of with, a lot of jazz you know we we want to be able to surprise an audience like that and even surprise each other as musicians on the bandstand um when we do things like that and so those things are so not only musically interesting but they're so dynamic and they prove to me what i enjoy about jazz yeah for sure so i think just this this song is a great ending tune for the album um well let's get into our top threes and our not so hot tracks before we get into our overall thoughts and our ratings for the album 
Uh, Max, why don't you go first on on this one with your top three and your not-so-hot track? As probably predicted, uh, the last track is my favorite, Rejoice, so that's my number one. Number two is the first track on the album, Long Gone, the title track. I think it's a great composition. I love the expanded eight-bar sort of simmering that happens in, in, in the form, you know, as we transition from one solo to the next some great moments in long gone and then number three was disco ears that's the track that joshua is on soprano um it's a catchy melody which a couple of the other tracks are missing hate to say it but that one is catchy and the solos are are really well developed it's great dear joshua redmond on the soprano sax and he kills it my not so hot is statuesque which was the one that sounded almost like classical music at times I just really don't dig it. I think the imagery I was getting of the torn up sailboat and the um, uh, floating away sailor speaks for itself. That's what I was getting with statuesque, um, which I don't think was what it was <laughs> intended. But, you know, I just I just don't like it. I just think it it misses the mark as a jazz composition. And I hate to go out on a limb like that because it's Joshua Redman, who is a beast, who will forever be one of the greats, especially of our era. But um, that one just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, I can definitely get what you're saying there. Um, my top three is very similar to Max. In fact, it's the exact same because I think it's it's they're fairly obvious. Sometimes I just think that these are more obvious than others. Rejoice is a fantastic track it has everything to offer long gone the title track is interesting it's fun disco ears is more of the same um at my number three but i went a little bit different of a direction with my not so hot i think that the reason i didn't pick statuesque or ship to shore for my not so hot is because they although they lacked they didn't do much for me i thought that they were honestly a little bit dull um they were memorable in their arrangement and like what was going on. And the one song that I didn't feel, it just felt completely non-memorable to me. No offense to the, to the song or the album is Kite Song. It's just when I think about the album, that's the one that I'm just like, how does that song even go? And with the, all the other ones, like I remember <laughs> them. And Kite Song just, it really did not do it for me. It's non-memorable. Statuesque, at least, you know, it's different. Like Max said, it's this very modern kind of classical approach, but at least it sticks in my mind, which Kite Song did not. So for that reason, Kite Song was my not-so-hot uh, track on, on the album here. Um, so cool. Well, let's get into our overall album thoughts and our ratings before we close out the episode. I'll go ahead and go first on this one, Max. Um, so Long Gone reunites an A-list quartet that's gotten together just a few times in the past 30 years in the studio. This album certainly has a lot to offer and does not lack talent or musical ability. The album starts off hot with tracks like Long Gone and Disco Ears before cooling into a more modern reserved approach for the innermost three tracks before really picking back up with the heavy hitting closer Rejoice. The group's connected connectedness is undeniable and they're constantly on the same page and moving as one joshua redmond gives us a lot on this album and wrote all of the tunes for the album he's extremely well versed and his playing is very eclectic yet has seemed to lighten towards a more modern approach lately as compared to some of his albums from the 90s and early 2000s listening to his album 
uh, spirit of the moment, like we mentioned, which we listened to um, a little bit. It might be hard to imagine that this is even the same saxophone player as back then. Um, the rhythm section is comprised of the best in the business. Brad Meldow's technique is unmatched and his style is so unique to him. We get a good taste of that here, although I feel there's more for Meldow to offer and this isn't quite the pinnacle of his work. Um, Christian McBride and Brian Blade fit the bill perfectly and I'd be hard pressed to find much to critique about their playing throughout the album. They keep the music moving and driving even when certain aspects of the songs are in some ways dull. I think that the album does create a bit of confusion with having three tracks that are so energetic, interesting, and swinging, yet having three tracks that, for a lack of better words, are just slightly dull. I It's not to say that the playing is bad or that there's something that the group is doing wrong on the tracks. I just think that the approach, which we know is probably the modern hip approach a la Emmanuel Wilkins, to me it just lacks energy drive and of all things swing at certain times. Some of these melodies um, do not seem to grab the attention as much as others with the more simplistic long tone approach. With all of that being said, I do still think there is a very nutritional value to these tunes, maybe in the solo sections more so due to such fantastic musicians. And the endings of the tunes, I'd be hard-pressed not to, to mention. They're just so well curated, and all in all, this album has some really nice moments and is worth checking out, but I don't think it's the crowning piece of any of the four musicians that created it so for that reason there's some really awesome things there's some things that are a little bit dull in my opinion i gave it a 7.6 out of 10 on this one max i think joshua redmond's long gone album is a puzzling yet interesting record that most definitely has a lot of nice moments three of the compositions are mesmerizingly brilliant that swing hard and have nice melodies followed by great solos I'm thinking Long Gone, Rejoice, and Disco Ears, while the other three tunes seem lacking in one aspect or another. I dig the varying approaches the group takes on each track. One is certainly different from the next, which is hard to pull off. I think tunes such as Statuesque and Kite Song are meant to stretch the boundaries of jazz, yet at times I wonder if we're too far from home base. An all-star cast is present, as can be heard from the drum stylings of Brian Blade, who continually adds interesting rhythms and comping beneath numerous solos as witnessed on Ship to Shore and Rejoice. Christian McBride is also utilized well as a timekeeper, soloist, and a melodic instrument, as expressed in moments of statuesque in Ship to Shore. Brad Meldow is quite consistent with his contributions, always delivering ideas that seem to be musically necessary and appropriate. Joshua Redman's improvisations are on point, while some of his melodies are quite catchy, featuring an array of movement. Other melodies here, Cough Cough Kite Song, seem to be lacking something and are easily forgettable. Also, I'm not sure if Statuesque does much for me. At moments, it reminds me more of classical music than jazz. It also is evident that Redman's sound and approach has modernized a bit as he seems to have lined up his sound and articulation. This version of Rejoice is the exception, though, along with some moments on Long Gone. I do appreciate a lot of the arrangements of these songs. For instance, I adore having a bass solo go first and ship to shore. Also, there are no studio fades, which is much appreciated. 
Each song has a defined ending that works to effectively conclude each tune in an interesting, satisfying way. I think this album also starts and ends extremely well. Both Long Gone and Rejoice are enjoyable to listen to as they are both filled with development, intricate interplay between each instrument, and a nice use of dynamics. On the album Long Gone, we're offered the conundrum of subjectivity. Personally, I think that there are significant moments of energy, swing, soloistic development, and awesome playing, but that would only describe 60 to 70% of this album. In regards to the rest of this record, I tend to shrug my shoulders. Overall score, 7.3 out of 10. Yeah, and so that puts our overall score a 7.5 out of 10. I think if it were just three tracks and we were reviewing just those three tracks that we kind of mentioned, Long Gone, Disco Ears, and um, Rejoice, we might have you know, given it a higher score. But yeah, just... I don't know. I was expecting maybe a little bit more from cover to cover on this one from from this group, especially. So that's where my, you know, kind of some points got taken off of my score. Um, So cool. Let's get into uh, our album for next week. Like we said in the intro, we are doing a Grammys run up a Grammys three weeks uh, residence here. Um, So next we're going to be doing the album Parallel Motion by Yellow Jackets, who's head up by Bob Mincer, who's well-known. Um, and this is another 2022 album up for the Grammy for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. So going against this album, Long Gone, and the album New Standards Volume 1 that we did earlier in the podcast by Terry Lynn Carrington. So we'll be doing three of the, I think, five albums that are nominated. But also, we will be doing our our grammys preview show where we kind of go through our thoughts on albums in three different categories well one's the solos best solo best improvised solo best instrumental jazz album and we're going to do best vocal jazz album so we're going to be getting into parallel motion this week and next week we're going to be getting into samara joy's latest album which is up for the vocal um, category but after that we're going to be doing a full preview show where we kind of go into our picks we don't know what each other are going to pick so we're going to pick our pick out of those three categories we're listening to every single album and everything single solo so we'll kind of give you just what to look forward to a preview show for the grammys as far as jazz goes um within the next couple of weeks right before the grammys air so yeah that, that'll be super fun for sure yeah, I'm looking into getting into our Grammy picks. That will be very interesting. We may have some differences, and we're going to explore little snippets of, of the music that is uh, up for nomination. So it'll be it'll be an interesting episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, before we go, I do want to mention that we do have a website. It's linked in the description of the show. Please take the time to go and look at that. It has links to our Instagram, which is the Jazz Jam Podcast on Instagram. It has our email. Everything that you need is there. Um, Please feel free to reach out to us. We love suggestions. We love listener questions. Any way that you want to interact with us would be great. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. And we're really looking forward to the next couple of weeks leading up to the Grammys. And I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast. (laughs) 